The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Everybody's talking about the 10-year yield. We are this close to 2% for the first time since the pandemic hit. We're also bracing for another 7%-plus CPI print tomorrow morning. We'll look at why stocks are rallying in the face of all of this. Plus, Pfizer shares are dropping after earnings. The company expecting $32 billion of revenue from its COVID vaccine, but analysts wanted more. We will talk to Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla momentarily. And in earnings exchange, we're looking ahead to Chipotle, MSG Entertainment, and Lyft. But first, let's get to the very latest on markets. Dom Chu here with the numbers. So we're right near session highs right now. It's doing some pretty good, pretty good damage to the upside here for a lot of the parts of the market. The Dow Industrial is up about 1%. That's roughly 340 points to the upside. The S&P 545.18, the last trade there, that's up about three quarters of 1% or 35 points. And the Nasdaq Composite, currently 14,173 or thereabouts, 157 points to the upside, roughly 1% plus gains there. So again, this nice move higher. As for what's driving a lot of the action, many company-specific headlines are in certain parts of the market driving things. But overall, check out some of the stocks that are most tied to the economic reopening, that, that, that COVID pandemic recovery type trade. To that end, you look at travel and leisure-related stocks, hospitality names like Royal Caribbean, up 5% right now. American Airlines is up 4.5%. MGM Resorts up 3%. Expedia and Live Nation each up around 3 to 3.5% as well. So that so-called reopening trade, this bet that things are going to get back to normal, people are going to get outside and travel more, that's going to be one of those big leaders today so far. And then one of the stocks that's not participating to the upside today, General Motors. We've talked a lot about the competition in in terms of electric vehicles and the legacy automakers and what they're doing. Well, today's downside, about two and a half percent. By the way, it was down six percent at the lows, putting it at one point at the lowest levels going all the way back to August of this past year. If you take a look at General Motors overall, you look at that particular stock. And the reason why is because Morgan Stanley auto analyst Adam Jonas has downgraded this stock from an overweight rating to an equal weight. He's also cut the price target from $75 down to $55. They're changing some of their methodology, and it's driven a lot by the assumptions now that GM has given out new forecasts for the coming year. They think the growth is slowing. They're changing their General Motors rating, and that's what's driving a lot of that downside, down 2.5%. But again, off-session lows, Kel. Back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. We appreciate it. My next guest says that Fed tightening is a foregone conclusion that means choppy trading ahead, but he has three specific names he thinks investors should lean on in this market. Joining me now is David Harden. He is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Summit Global Investments. David, welcome. It's good to see you again. Thank you, Kelly. It's good to be on. Glad I mean, to be back. You definitely seem to be of the view that the Fed is behind the curve here. So, you know, as we hear people warning, yeah, that's whether from Jan Hatzius today to Dave, Dave Zervos yesterday, some of these longtime, you know, econ and market watchers are saying, yeah, it could be a, a trickier environment for stocks, not a disaster. But what are you telling people to do about it? 
Well, there's some specific things people can do, and depending on your portfolio, but let's face it, inflation is higher than we all want it to be, right? Everybody's buying now, not worrying about later. So the January CPI port coming out on Thursday is a big deal. The market's going to watch that very, very closely. And whether it's under the estimates or over the estimates, the point is it's still going to be somewhere around 7%. And so, yeah, the Fed's behind the curve here, and they've painted themselves into a corner, and interest rates, I think, are going up. We've already seen that just in today alone, but in the last two months, they've gone up. And so I think that's continuing. I think we will see the yield go above two here and um, and, and continue. Yeah. And so what they can do is look for companies that can pass along some of this, um, if you will, this inflation. Look for companies that also have high cash flow, great profit margins, or in an area of the market that's going to do well. You guys just talked a lot about GM, and let's just talk about Ford. So Ford's a solid management company. Electricity is the thing right now in these motors. You're seeing it with the with GM redoing some of their estimates and their outlook. Ford, exactly the opposite. They cannot build enough. They're starting right. to try to slow down orders. So you have the Lightning truck, you have the new Mustang, which really isn't even a Mustang, the Mach-E, but looks great, drives great. And this is a low PE. We're talking less than 10, right? So high yield, low PE, recent pullback is, I think, is a great opportunity. So these are some of the names that I think you want to be looking at. Yeah, and thank you, by the way, for correcting me on the CPIs on Thursday. It feels like tomorrow, uh, the importance that it's taken on for this market. So you like Ford here for all the reasons that you described. You also like Nike and Meta. I mean, Meta in particular, why do you think that that is a stock that people will want to be in for the duration of the year? Well, let, let's let, let's face it. One of the things that we do here at SGI is we focus specifically on downside risk. And Meta has had a ton of downside. And so is that flushed out? About the only thing right now that's not flushed out and we're looking at is some of this positioning in Europe with the with the agreements they have there, whether they're legal or not, and whether they shut down Instagram or Facebook in Europe. But the reality is, is they're in a space that is exploding this metaverse. They're changing their ticker symbol later this year from FB to, to Meta, and they're all in on this, spending up $3.3 billion of this growth. I think these pullbacks is a great opportunity to build your position. I do not think, not only is uh, I think Mark doing a great job at what he's looking at, he's very eager for growth. So we have high profit margins, above average growth, and very cheap, cheap stock in the tech space. I think this is a really good opportunity to build positions here. I think you're going to see both retail and institutional buyers. And let's face it, you know, at Christmas time, um, the Oculus uh, virtual goggles were the hit. I think that continues. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot, lot of um, uh, risk flushed out of this stock. The risk is not to the downside anymore. With the volatility in the market, this is a position that I would look to continue to build. All right. I know you think the Omicron has helped Nike uh, to some extent as well. David, we appreciate your time today. Thank you for joining us. Talk a little bit about how to navigate these markets. You're welcome. Thanks, Kelly. David Harden with Summit Global Investments. And a quick programming note, joining us tomorrow right here on The Exchange for an exclusive interview is Bill Miller, Miller Value Partners Chairman and Chief Investment Officer. We'll talk to him around 1 p.m. Eastern. You won't want to miss it. We're really looking forward to that. All right. So this week's CPI report is expected to show the largest yearly jump in consumer prices since 1982. It already has rates moving higher and the Fed in a hurry to shift from policy easing to tightening. We spoke yesterday to David Zervos of Jeff 
Jeffries, who says the Fed needs to reduce the size of its balance sheet if it wants to have a real effect on fighting inflation. But my next guest warns that a rapid rundown of the balance sheet is, in our view, likely to create havoc in markets. Joining me now is Ian Shepardson, chief economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics. Ian, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So rapid versus slow versus should they do the balance sheet at all? There are a lot of variables up in the air for this Fed right now. How quickly do they need to move in your view? Not very. I mean, they've said a thousand times that they want interest rates to be the primary tool. Interest rates are the tool that sends a signal to the public that the balance sheet really doesn't. It grabs the front page of the, uh, of the, of the media and the balance sheet is a technicality that no one understands. So I don't really get this, uh, this headlong rush on the part of some FOMC members, not all of them, but some of them seem very keen on diving into the balance sheet. And I just don't see the logic behind this. I mean, if they're really that worried about inflation, then they need to raise rates more quickly. The balance sheet pressure seems to me to be kind of arbitrary and internally driven just by a sort of a free-floating anxiety about having such a big balance sheet. It's true, it's huge, but I don't think it should be the primary tool that they use to fight the current round of inflation. They can deal with the balance sheet later. Let me go back to what Dave Zervo said yesterday, and he comes at this from a market point of view, not so much an academic one. And his point is they've done $5 trillion of quantitative easing. That has had a real effect on the economy and that it would seem silly to leave it sitting out there without trying to run it back down. In other words, to reverse the easing effect, you have to run it back down in order for rate hikes to even have as much potency. What do you make of that liquidity argument? Yeah, well, the liquidity argument will make a difference in markets. That's what I'm worried about, that the Fed would take it back too quickly and, and trigger an entirely unwanted and unnecessary uh, crash in the stock market. See, the thing is that reversing the quantitative easing isn't going to take back the stimulus that was put in the hands of the private sector. So remember, the Fed printed the money to allow Treasury to send enormous stimulus checks and, and make uh, other payments through unemployment benefits and various other things to households and to businesses. No one is proposing taking that money back. So the, the money that people saved that was created by the Fed that sat in their bank accounts isn't going to go away when the Fed uh, reverses or if the Fed reverses its, uh, its balance sheet expansion. It's going to shrink bank reserves instead. So this is not the kind of the reversal of what was done to, uh, to ameliorate the pandemic. That money is mostly still sat there and still unspent. The, the balance sheet maneuvering, to me, if, if they do it, is simply going to raise the risk of, a, of an unnecessary market event, which would then feed back into the real economy. And, and as people, as they're doing it, the public won't understand what they're doing or why. That, that's why interest rates are so useful as a tool, because they send an unambiguous signal that everybody can understand. Oh, mortgage rates have gone up. Credit card rates have gone up. Car loan rates have gone up. That's very simple. Fed shrinks balance sheet. What does that mean to the average individual? N- nothing. So right. if so, they want to get a grip of the economy, they need to do that. I like this take, Ian. It's provocative. That's, what, that's, why we, uh, that's why we do a show. Let me ask you how many rate hikes then. If you can very quickly, you know, Bank of America came out with seven more people are in the four or five camp. Since you would like them to lean on this tool quite a bit, would you be up there in the higher end of that range? I'm at five. I think they do three at the next three meetings. It sends a powerful signal, and then I think they can go a bit more slowly. I mean, right now, the market's kind of in this competitive, how high can we forecast the Fed phase of the cycle, which is always where we get to at some point. We've got there right now. I think some of those expectations have to be dialed back a little bit, yeah. but, but they definitely need to tighten. Rates are, you know, they're at zero, and inflation is, well, unfortunately, heading to 7%. They've got to move. They're going to have to move quite quickly, but they don't need to keep going at a, at a breakneck pace, you know, indefinitely. They need to get a grip of things, and then I think they can be a bit more measured after that. All right. It's a great debate. Ian, thanks for joining us with your perspective on it today.
Thanks. Ian Shepardson with Pantheon Macroeconomics. All right. In the meantime, a three-year Treasury note went up for auction. All right. Not so ho-hum anyway these days, but you should especially see how much foreign interest there was once again. Rick Santelli with the results. Rick? Boy, Kelly, you must have ESP. The foreign interest is the key to this auction. Let's go through it quickly. $50 billion, three-year notes, the first leg of the February refunding. This particular tranche is threes, tens, and thirties for $110 billion. The yield at the auction, 1.592%. A smidge higher than the one issued, so it tailed a bit, but I still gave it a B plus. Why? Well, the bid to cover 2.45, roughly average. But the indirect bidders, that foreign category that Kelly was referencing, my database goes back 20 years. 68.5, I have one more month that equals that. That was in November of 09. None that are higher. Terrific. And 11.1 is the other extreme. The direct bidders was the smallest percentage since April of 2020, so not that long ago. But here's the other category that blows my mind. Okay. The dealers only took 20.3% of this auction. That is the smallest amount they've ever taken on my 20-year run of history. And the reason is because those foreigners pretty much ran the table first. Kelly, back to you. They are keeping our borrowing costs down. They are stimulating our economy. They are taking the sting out of this tightening cycle, at least for now. Rick, thank you very much, as always, our Rick Santelli. All right, now to Pfizer. Shares at one point were flirting with their worst day since summer 2020 after posting mixed results this morning and giving full-year guidance that missed analyst estimates. For more on the quarter and what's ahead for the pharma giant, Meg Terrell is here with the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla. Meg? Well, Kelly, thanks so much. Albert, it's great to see you. Thanks for being with us. You know, let's start with the quarter and your forecast. You know, you forecast $54 billion in combined sales of your COVID vaccine and your antiviral drug on top of the rest of the business. But the stock is down, as Kelly was pointing out. What do you make of the investor reaction here? You know, when it comes to, to stock price, it's never a sprint. It's always a marathon. And, you know, you will have this volatility because some people are taking, uh, let's say, opportunities from uh, prices either to sell or to buy. I think uh, we should look uh, beyond what happens this day. And I think uh, the numbers that we gave for guidance for this year were a record high, not only for Pfizer, I think for the industry, with the first time uh, 100 billions of revenues uh, on the midpoint of a guidance. It's nothing that uh, have not been happened before. And of course, one of the major drivers uh, of that guidance is your antiviral pill Paxlovid, uh, forecasting $22 billion uh, in revenue for this year. And that's a number that analysts said they expect could go up because you could sign more supply deals for it. You also showed how the manufacturing supply is expected to ramp really a lot toward the end of this year. At what point are you expecting it'll be a lot easier for people here in the United States to access this drug, that it'll be more widely available? First of all, here in the United States, every month will be better than the previous one. We are giving way more in February than we gave in March, and then we gave in January, way more in March, and I think significant quantity starting in April. Uh, so I think uh, pretty soon they will be, let's say, way easier for people to find Paxlovid. Right now, the states are uh, working reasonably well. Uh, uh, most of the states immediately uh, order all the allocation that the U.S. government is giving them, which is basically what we are giving them. And um, this number right now is very, way higher than what used to be a year ago, for example, uh, the first month of the vaccines. Uh, as you remember, we had more product than uh, the system could absorb. Now, this is not the case. 
Uh, also, I want to uh, to clarify something that when we speak about uh, guidance and forecast uh, for the remaining of the business, that it is quite predictable, uh, we are giving as usual a forecast. We calculate how much we think, for example, our products will be utilized at the current price and what that means financially for us. When it comes to COVID vaccine or uh, the pills, uh, we are not following this uh, process. We are uh, uh, giving only uh the numbers that are coming from signed contracts or contracts that are about to be signed have been agreed the terms volumes prices and we are just about to sign um this clearly is not the way that the analysts are forecasting they are uh, not having right. visibility in the context they are looking to see how much we will do i think this was the uh, disconnect clearly it's expected that more contracts will be signed because right now for paxlovid we are in discussions with uh, almost 100 governments around the world, and for Comirnaty as well. There are a lot of uh, governments that are coming with repeated orders. Well, it makes sense. And on the vaccine community, um, of course, on Friday, we are expecting to see the data in your FDA briefing documents for the vaccine for kids under five. A lot of parents um, are wondering how optimistic to be about getting this vaccine and getting access to it sooner with these two doses. Um, how um, optimistic should parents like me feel about having a protective and safe vaccine uh, with two doses as it goes through this FDA process relatively soon? I think the chances are very high to, to be for, for FDA to, uh, to approve it and uh, for the, for the uh, ACIP, the CDC, to recommend it. Uh, but of course, I can't speak about them. We need to have uh, to wait for the process to go through so that the VIRBAC, the Committee of External Experts, should see the data. And uh, also the same with ACAP. Given everything, I think that uh, they will be pleased with the data and uh, they will approve it. Well, I definitely can't wait to see it. <laughs> I also, of course, have to ask you about a topic you got a lot of questions about on the call, which is M&A. And you guys aren't shy about saying you've got a lot of firepower, a lot of cash coming in, uh, and you're not uh, going to hold back on potentially spending it on something uh, potentially large. How, how big of M&A deals are you looking at potentially? Yes. I never use the word spending because we don't spend, we invest. And uh, the investments will go to science. This is the right thing for the company right now and the right thing for, for the world right now. Uh, we believe that uh, there is enough substrate out there, scientific substrate, that we could add dramatically higher value, as we did with the partnership with BioNTech, for example. And uh, more of that will be seen. We believe that by deploying capital in the next several years, we should be able to get science that, for the analyst, will be translated in risk-adjusted revenues of at least 25 billion in year 2030. That's on top of whatever our current business will do, on top of what our current pipeline will deliver, and of course, on top of whatever the current uh, community and Axlovit will do by that year. Well, that's not small. Albert Borla, thanks so much for spending this time with us. We look forward to catching up with you again. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Meg, thank you. Our Meg Terrell with the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla, as we keep an eye on those shares today. All right, coming up, the first Bitcoin mining ETF in the country is making its debut with over a billion dollars in assets under management. What's in the fund and will investors show up? We'll ask the CEO behind the ETF next. Plus, Chipotle, Lyft and MSG Entertainment, far from their recent highs, but can last quarter's results give these beleaguered stocks a much needed boost? 
We'll dig into it ahead on Earnings Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. The first ever Bitcoin mining ETF is now trading on the NASDAQ. There it is. It's open for trade. It's up about three quarters of 1%. It's from Valkyrie Investments. Ticker is WGMI, which is an old joke. We're going to make it. Uh, it has a large focus on renewable energy, and the launch's timing actually misses the plunge some of its biggest holdings have seen recently. Marathon blockchain down 44% over the past two month, months. Clean Spark uh, is down more than 50%. For more, let's welcome in Leah Walt. She's co-founder and CEO of Valkyrie Investments. Leah, it's great to have you here. And um, why do you think you guys are the first one to come to market with this? Sure, Kelly, thank you so much for having for having me on today. You know, it's it's really exciting today. The you know, it's trading well out of the gates, spreads are tight, trading volume is good, over 50,000. I think that we're in a really good placement because again, you know, not only is this a great opportunity to have exposure to Bitcoin mining, but specifically, you know, we have a green lens on this fund to ensure that it's really taking advantage of the climate positive portfolio narrative that's so important in the industry right now. Yeah, I think I read that more than 80 percent of the holdings derive more than half of their energy from renewable sources, which is even better than the U.S. energy grid. But here's my question from a trading point of view. I was it was my understanding that you often need a lot of short interest to launch an ETF. So should we should we read from this launch that people are, are happy to take the other side of uh, the Bitcoin mining trade? Or maybe maybe it's a little late for that. Maybe the move has already happened. <laughs> yeah, good question. Good question. You know, definitely what we're seeing today, at least, is just good, strong demand. I think that there's been a lot of pent up demand in order to have a equity, you know, thematic ETF that, again, provides that exposure to Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining, but especially ensuring that there's that climate positive portfolio message. So to your point, you know, the top five holdings in our fund have 90% renewable energy usage. And I think that that's been very important. And that's actually what we've been hearing from the advisors, financial advisors, RIAs, and other money managers that has been the reason that they haven't jumped into Bitcoin mining previously. So oh, it's really built for them. So, I, you know, there's been this kind of longstanding debate about whether to invest in gold through the commodity itself or through the gold miners. And everyone always likens it to those who sell picks and shovels during the 
you know, during the gold rush itself, um, it, there is a lot of interest in the idea of being exposed to Bitcoin mining as opposed to the underlying, although they seem to, to mostly move in correlation with each other. So other than the ESG focus you mentioned, who else do you think this ETF would appeal to? Very good question. And you're absolutely right. There's absolute parallels to the other mining industries. So I think in one way, it's not so novel in the best of ways for money managers who can just understand that you are investing in Bitcoin miners and that's providing the same indirect exposure to Bitcoin that investing in gold miners provides to gold or oil drillers to oil. So even though this industry is newer, the thesis is the same as it's been for decades when compared to other commodity plays, you know. And I guess to note, what is exciting about this one is just that Bitcoin miners have historically realized relatively high profit margins. So that makes them a very attractive, you know, investment for people seeking to further diversify their portfolios. All right, Leah, thanks. We'll watch it with interest. Appreciate you joining me today. Leah Wald with Valkyrie Investment, tongue-tied today. All right, coming up, Peloton on pace for its best day ever after axing its embattled CEO. We've got the details next with a stock up 27% to $37 a share. Plus, we're sending one of our own into the metaverse. CNBC.com's Mackenzie Segalos taking the digital plunge for us and looking at the big brands putting real money into the metaverse. The exchange is back after this. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back, everybody. Not a bad day in the markets, believe it or not, with everything going on with rates and all the rest of it. The Dow's 40 points off its high. We're up 322 right now for a 1% gain that's nearly matched by the Nasdaq. All right, nine tenths of 1%. And the S&P up two thirds of 1%. And steel and aluminum stocks are on the move after the U.S. and Japan struck a uh, deal to roll back the Trump era tariffs on steel. Century Aluminum and Alcoa are having their best day since October. You can see Century up more than 11%. The Van Eck Steel ETF, ticker SLX, on pace for its best month since last March. On the flip side, the fintech names are under pressure today, with Robinhood tracking for its 13th weekly loss in the past 14 weeks. Block, formerly Square, lower after, after Apple announced a new tap-to-pay feature for businesses that would seem to compete with that. You can see Block down 1%. Uh, but here's some of the Chinese stocks. Take a look at the tech names, especially in the green, the Crane Shares China Internet ETF, trying to post back-to-back weekly gains for the first time since October. It's now flat on the year, around $36 for the ETF, with about a 3% gain, 10% for PIN Duo Duo today. Over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. We begin in Minneapolis, where authorities have arrested a 17-year-old in connection with the homicide investigation that led to a SWAT team fatally shooting Amir Locke. The teen has been booked into a juvenile detention center on suspicion of second-degree murder. If you plan on betting on this year's Super Bowl, well, you are not alone. The American Gaming Association expects 31.5 million people will be putting money on the game. Total bets are predicted to jump 78% from last year to more than $7.6 billion. On the news tonight, for the first time in 20 years, Major League Baseball has reportedly stopped testing for steroids. 
Find out what's behind the reported change tonight at 7 Eastern. And in Spain, a retired doctor is fighting hard to keep in-person customer services at banks across the country. 78-year-old Carlos San Juan started a petition and has gathered over 610,000 signatures. He says that many people his age feel left out by the shift to online banking. Today, he traveled to Madrid to personally deliver the petition to Spain's Treasury Secretary and Kelly. His slogan on his website is, I'm a senior citizen not an idiot. And it seems to be getting quite a bit of support there. Oh, well, I'm a millennial and I feel the same way a lot of the time. Agreed. Agreed. Well, thank you very much. Still ahead, everybody, could driver supply issues derail Lyft? Is MSG Entertainment well positioned as a reopening play? And will higher food prices weigh on Chipotle's margins? We have the action, the story and the trade for all these names next in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. We're more than halfway through earnings season, but there are some big names on deck today. For this edition of Earnings Exchange, we are looking at Lyft, MSG Entertainment, and Chipotle. Let's start with Lyft. It's up more than 3% ahead of the print, but has fallen 24% over the past year. Analysts are watching how Omicron impacted demand last quarter and whether incentives are helping to attract drivers without hurting the bottom line. Here with the story on Lyft is our very own Dom Chu. And Dan Genter has our trades today. He's the CEO and CIO of RNC Genter Capital Management. Welcome to you both. Dom, start us off. What are we looking for with Lyft? All right. So you mentioned, Kelly, that the 24% decline over the last year for Lyft shares. By the way, that, that's outperforming Uber, which has lost 36% during that similar time period. So let's start off now with what the estimates are. Lyft is expected to come in with earnings per share of roughly $0.09. Cents. Total revenue is just about $941.5 million. So the results could show both profits and revenues will be better year over year. Increases over those same time frames. Now, the last three years, a roller coaster ride for sure for the ride-hailing company, even with the pandemic and the subsequent recovery, the near and term, medium term, at least momentum has been to the downside for the better part of the last year. Investors will be looking at some of the more uh, other ancillary metrics, like the number of active users or riders, as well as how much each of those riders generates in revenues per rider. Lyft is also a stock that can be very volatile around these earnings releases. And just to give you an idea of that, over the last eight quarterly reports, Lyft has traded up four times and down four times with an average move up or down of eight and a half percent. And Kelly, right now, the options market is currently pricing in a move of up or down 14 and a half percent, just wow. to give you an idea of just how volatile it could be. So this is very much going to be a story, not just about the current or the previous quarter ups and downs, bottom line and top lines, but also what the forecast and outlook will be for Lyft and its riders. All right. So we could see some big movement on this front. Dan, I think you've said in the past you're not a huge fan of their business models. What are you looking for? What would you do with the stocks? Well, I think you have to like the stock, Kelly, at this price. I mean, there's going to be, as was just mentioned, there's going to be a tremendous amount of volatility. It's certainly get caught. It's getting caught on all sides by by changes and and what's happening in the overall economy, what's happening in in PE compressions, the shift from growth to value. I mean, it has all of these obstacles. But but that having been said. You know, the, the lift has done well, at least compared to its comps, even though on a revenue basis has actually struggled because Uber did a much better job of pivoting in 2020 to go into Uber Eats, to being part of the stay-at-home delivery model. I mean, Lyft pretty well just took it on the chin. Now, what's happening, though, where I see an advantage for Lyft is that they're primarily domestic. 
I mean, they're U.S., they're Canadian. We're clearly opening up here. Even in California, mass mandates are about to come off. I mean, they're going to be a, a very pure play as, as we start to reopen. So when you look at the range of where it is now, this is a look, it's been a darling growth stock. It's a little out of favor right now, but it's trading at a 23 P.E. So if you can have good numbers, you know, the street's really looking for earnings to be up over 60 percent. But if you can see decent numbers for fourth quarter, you get some reasonable guidance. You know, then this is a stock that really could join the rest of the growth crowd and, and even be a 40 P.E. Interesting. So I think right now it's a it's a buy. But, Dan, are you looking at 2023 earnings for that P.E., though? Because it looks like if we look at the next four quarters or so, the P.E. would be much higher. Absolutely. I mean, you're not look. you're not I'm not talking about a, a double. You know, we're not looking from 23 to 44. But but certainly, you know, look, you could see a pop of at least 15 percent in the stock from where you are now. Hmm. And you just need some reasonable news. If they don't really disappoint, yeah. you know, the big the big if is going to be how bad did they get hit by Omni in December? And if, if that looks reasonable, I think you get a decent pop on the stock. Very interesting. And from what Dom said about the options market, could happen in a moment <laughs> or in a day. Exactly. We'll see. Uh, be sure to catch Lyft co-founder John Zimmer discussing these results as well on Squawk Box tomorrow around 8.45 a.m. Eastern time. Dom, thank you very much, Dan. You stay right there. Let's move on to Madison Square Garden Entertainment, the spinoff of MSG that counts its concerts and non-sporting events. It's a quintessential reopening trade, but the shares are down nearly 30% in the past year. Our audience knows this is a Charlie Babrinskoy favorite pick. Uh, Julia Borston is here with the story. Julia, what will you be watching for tonight? Well, I would say one thing I'm not going to be watching for is comps with last year. And that's because last year, the live event space was so quiet. It doesn't make sense to look at comps. What it does make sense is to look at the impact of Omicron on this past quarter to get a sense of how much people change their behavior because of Omicron. And then any guidance, that's really where investors are going to be looking to understand bookings and also whether different acts are, are scaling back or whether they're still committed to their performances going forward. Another key thing to watch here, Kelly, is betting. MSGE does have partnerships with a number of the big sports books, such as DraftKings. So we're going to have to see what they say about the potential to grow that business. All right. So, Dan, if you're tactically interested in Lyft here, does MSGE tickle your fancy the same way? Yeah, I think so. And I think Julia is absolutely correct that there are no comps. So there's nothing really to compare it to. So all you can really look is at the the bookings and the shows they have planned for the next six months, which actually looks very strong. You know, we we manage money here for a lot of people in L.A. and the entertainment business. And I can tell you, they're they're back out on the road. So the venues are opening up. Performers are performing. They're making money again. They want to be out there. And right now, you know, what you're looking at in the show bookings actually looks very, very good for the next six months. So but I think the, the play here, which is why we actually like this stock, is that. All of those things are going to be very positive. The revenue, you know, should get back up to be, you know, a little below where it was, you know, in certainly in 19, but well, well back on its road. But the play is it's an asset play. I mean, this stock is selling below book value. And I think you really have to look at it yeah. just as an asset play right now. And so it's a strong buy with, you know, with, again, reasonable news that we can see. I mean, we're not going to shut the economy down again. These shows are going to go on, you know, as the saying goes. And, uh, and they're uh, just very cheap right now. All right. MSGE, the spotlight is on them uh, in this next report. Julia, thank you very much, our Julia Borston. All right. Finally today, Chipotle, one of the rare names with pricing power in the face of rising costs. Shares are still down 17 percent this year, but it's been a monster performer. Zero sell ratings on the street heading into this report. 
What are the key metrics to watch Kate, watch Kate Rogers is all over it? Hi, Kate. Hey, Kelly. Well, the key metrics, of course, will be same-store sales and also margins, how this inflation is impacting uh, the restaurant operating margins here. So you mentioned pricing power. Chipotle is, as mentioned, one of the rare names that really does have it in this space. And last quarter, we heard from executives that they were really confident that they could pull the pricing lever even further, and customers likely wouldn't pull back if needed. They noted higher costs in beef, in freight, and they were raising menu prices uh, slowly and, and just slightly, and really not seeing as mentioned, consumers pulling back. They also raised prices back in June to cover higher wages. So that's going to be another thing to watch here. A close second will be its digital sales. That's always very important with Chipotle. It was about a little less than half of all sales last quarter. And another thing here is its loyalty members. Last quarter, it had just under 25 million loyalty members. Kelly, it's one of the fastest growing programs in the space that we track. And digital and loyalty really allow it to kind of switch over and rely more heavily on digital sales when, you know, it's having some staffing challenges in restaurants. It's interesting you mentioned zero sell ratings. I think that's because a lot of investors do have confidence that this is one company that can really continue to absorb these price hikes. All right, Dan, and we're out of time. So let me boil it down. You, you would still prefer something like McDonald's to Chipotle here? Yeah, that's correct. I just think they're, they're a little bit more price to perfection. They're going to have to grow at 30 percent to maintain this P.E., uh, if the stock goes down any, I'd buy on weakness as a growth play, but I would hold right now and see what happens with the earnings. All right, guys, thank you. We'll leave it right there. Dan Genter joining us with our trades today, our Kate Rogers covering Chipotle. And a quick programming note, the CEO, Brian Nickel, will be on Closing Bell in just a few hours to discuss those earnings, so stay tuned. All right, that does it for Earnings Exchange. Up next, the CEO is out, jobs are being cut, and a production plant in Ohio is scrapped. But is Peloton going far enough to regain the brand's footing? The activist firm pushing for change says no. We have the details next. Welcome back. Monster day, everybody, for Peloton, up 26% for its best session ever. On the news, CEO John Foley will step aside, and the company is taking cost-cutting measures. Peloton climbed yesterday as well on rumors it could be a takeover target, maybe by Amazon, but it's still more than 76% off its 52-week highs. It started this year as a $45 billion, no, last year as a $45 billion market cap. Now it's just about a $12 billion name. Peloton named Netflix and Spotify alum Barry McCarthy as its new chief executive. It's shaking up the board. But is that enough? Let's bring in branding and crisis management expert Dean Crutchfield. He's the CEO of Crutchfield and Partners. Dean, welcome. You know, analysts on the street are a little confused about what the strategy is here. Are they still trying to grow really quickly? Do they need a period of retrenchment? Why is the ousted CEO as executive chairman still speaking up quite a bit about the future direction of the company? What's the Dean advice here? Well, my advice is, is that, you know, Peloton's a brand in crisis, but, you know, any job of a CEO is to turn hardship into an opportunity. And the franchise that Peloton has built means that it has a possibly great future ahead of it, depending on how it's run. So it's a quick, you know, it's a question of how quickly can McCarthy hit the ground running, excuse the pun. And we know that he's got a great reputation. He's a terrific piece of real estate when it comes to understanding subscription-based business models. He was there from the get-go for Peloton being such a success. And I believe if he gets it right, it's got a great future ahead of it. Finding the right suitor with a deep pocket to make the brand, you know, herald and maintain its success going forward. What should they not do right now? What they should not do right now is keep on positioning themselves as a luxury provider of high-end equipment. To me, but that's what they the are, most- right? 
Right. Well, yes, but if you they're not actually, I think they're beyond that. And that's their opportunity. Hmm. You know, to me, they're not so much a high end provider of equipment. They are a, a, an experienced platform. You know, I know quite a few Peloton users, including members of my family, and they love it. Not just the equipment, they love the experience. They love the community. They love the experience. They like the interface. And to me, there's the opportunity for Peloton. It's even beyond being a subscription-based business model. It has a strong brand ahead of itself, even though it's collapsed to a $12 billion brand value, as you say now. But the franchise is enormous. And I think any suitor like an Amazon or a Nike sees that opportunity for the franchise that they built. They are a true brand and they've done it quite rapidly. You're right. So I think it's... I was going to say, you're right about in the the sort of devotion of the users, our own producers, our friends, our, our big fans of, of the product. But I still don't understand how they can capitalize on that, Dean, when the bikes are still expensive and the monthly subscription is still expensive. I've thought about getting one, but... It, you know, I don't want to get locked into another subscription product for a long period of time. So how do they capitalize on that while growing the community? Well, they brought in lower price models, so they're actually del de delivering that strategy to bring in more competitive offerings to the portfolio that they have. So they're going to keep on looking at those opportunities as well. So I'm not saying dump what they've got. What I'm saying is let's be mindful to maintain yourself just as a luxury brand. You, know, you need to be an affordable luxury brand. And there are many businesses out there that are tremendously successful that are positioned in luxury that aren't Louis Vuitton but they have strong followings and people love being right. associated with the brand. Would, and that's the problem here. Sorry. Just real quickly, I'm sorry, I'm trying to pack a lot in here, but if you were you know, an Amazon and Apple, one of these rumored suitors, do you would you like to see one of those big companies come in here? In terms of acquiring Peloton? Yes, yes. Absolutely, yes. I think that you know, there's a strategic direction for Peloton to take. And there's a lot more upside to go. I mean, they've defined the subscription-based business model, but I think there's a lot more opportunities for Peloton as a brand, as a master brand, hmm. than just a provider of high-end equipment. That's my personal belief. Yeah. I believe they have that following, they have that franchise, they have brand recognition, and that's a huge footprint you know, and an opportunity for a big brand partner like an Amazon to take advantage of that and really generate a lot of new revenue streams for the business going forward. Very, very interesting. Dean, thank you very much. Fun to pick your brain. We appreciate it. Thank you. Dean Crutchfeld with Crutchfeld and Partners. All right. This automaker climbing 30% over the past year and it's charging into EVs along with its peers. We have the name and the view from the C-suite next. And during February, we're celebrating black history and featuring some of our CNBC contributors. Here's CNBC contributor Isaiah McKinnon with what inspired him to become the man he is today. I experienced hatred because of the color of my skin, but I used that to enact change. I've met six presidents and countless other leaders, but the one who truly taught me the meaning of building wealth was Nelson Mandela. He inspired me to believe that true wealth is built on education, commitment, fortitude, love, hard work, and sacrifice. That's why I stand tall as I do today. for show and tell where we show you the chart and tell the story and toyota is outperforming ford and gm to start the year the automaker's north american sales chief told squawk box they're banking on ev demand to ramp up we think right now the infrastructure as well as consumer demand 
is it the tipping point that we're going to start entering and bringing more and more of these models to the market? Again, some impressive outperformance from Toyota there to kick off the year. Coming up, Gucci, Nike, Vans. Those are just some of the brands creating for the metaverse already. CNBC.com's Mackenzie Segalos is at one studio with the details. NICAP 3D in Brooklyn, New York, will inject you or your products into the metaverse. We'll give you a behind-the-scenes look at the process next. The metaverse is already here. It's in Brooklyn, where one company is scanning and placing people and sneakers and purses and anything you want into virtual reality. CNBC Tech's Mackenzie Segalos is at the studio working with big brands like Nike, LVMH, and Steve Madden. Mackenzie, what's that behind you there? Hey, Kelly. So I am standing in a photogrammetry rig in which there are 206 Canon DSLR cameras mounted from every possible angle in order to capture the most realistic depiction of both physical objects and people. Now, from my perspective, getting scanned in, it's super simple. I get a three-second warning, and then in 1 80th of a second, all 206 cameras go off at the same time. And it takes less than five minutes to turn all of those pictures into a digital rendering, a 3D model. And there are so many things that I can do with that digital avatar, Kelly. So it is possible to turn it into an NFT. I can mint it, make it a non-fungible token. And there are platforms like NFT Caster that make that process free. You can also use it in augmented reality, Hollywood special effects. And then as you said, I can put my digital avatar into the metaverse, which is a collection of all these virtual worlds in which people play games, buy property, go shopping. And as you mentioned, companies are coming to this studio in Brooklyn to use this rig in particular to create digital versions of their products, whether that's sneakers or apparel. And so LVMH, ASICS, Nike have all teamed up with a startup called I, yeah. <laughs> we've got a startup here in Brooklyn that's been doing this excellent work. And so it's, it's really exceptional seeing what's going on here. Kelly, back to you. You've got either some amazing moves or the technology can make anyone look that good, in which case me and Ty are going to go <laughs> try it out here in a minute. So how real are all of these efforts to put merchandise into this metaverse? Right. So I'm, so I'm here at NICAP 3D and uh, efforts by retailers to put items into the metaverse is really still very much in its early days. But you are seeing companies like Nike team up with Roblox to create Nike Land, which is a virtual world in which you can play games, but also dress up your avatars and digital versions of Air Force One sneakers. Wow. Sounds pretty good. I <laughs> You know, people are jealous of all those cameras behind you. They're trying to get their hands on just one of them. What is it, 260? Uh, incredible. Mackenzie, thanks so much for bringing that alive for us. We really appreciate it. CNBC's Mackenzie Segalos. All right, everybody, that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.